tonight is not where we were going to go based upon the end of last Tuesday night's lesson. If you'll recall, we did a lesson called Say Your Prayers. It was the introduction to what is called the Lord's Prayer. We're right there in the sixth chapter of Matthew in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to give you a little brief intro story before we read the text as to why we landed where we did tonight. When I walked out Tuesday evening, we had this Tuesday night ready to go. Lord's Prayer, pretty simple. Most of us have it relatively memorized. Um, it's not as if we're going to be presenting new material, easy to walk through. I kind of segmented it off in my head and went about my business to do other things. Tuesday night, I think it was, maybe Wednesday night of last week, I had a dream and I was in this room and I said one line and woke up and it was, blessed are the peacemakers. I didn't really think a lot of it. I just got up in the middle of the night and uh, smooth move, Brian. I, I, I could almost feel it go up. Guys, this ain't a hobby for Brian. This is not a hobby. This is not his first radio. Um, that was the entire dream, which was weird because I mean, what's that mean? Um, you know, here I am teaching and I say one line. And I, I, I woke up and didn't think much more of it. And then every day this last week, the Holy Spirit would circle me back to one line, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, of course we know where that is. It's in the Beatitudes, but it's a one that we didn't focus on when we came through the Beatitudes. You remember, we just kind of bounced a little bit. We moved into five, and then we moved into six, and I kept telling you we'll go back to Beatitudes when we need to. Well, apparently we needed to, and I wasn't catching on. And uh, so I, I shifted gears to blessed are the peacemakers. I didn't think another thing about the Lord's Prayer until this morning when the uh, it was, and Natasha said, well, are we doing the Lord's Prayer tonight? And uh, no, not for five days we haven't been, but oh, you're right, I'm supposed to do the Lord's Prayer. And so i not um, proud of my inability to follow the Spirit, but um, shelved, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, if, you know, the Lord gives you a dream, what's that mean? Who cares, right? Do what you want. Do the Lord's Prayer. And as I started to lay out the Lord's Prayer, we get to the first two words, our Father. Collective pronoun, a God who is no longer the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but our Father. And it, I heard the Holy Spirit say, blessed are the peacemakers. And so I circled back to the Beatitudes to find Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers... And for the first time in Jesus' ministry, he calls someone a son of God. And you can't call God Father until you know you are a son. And in that moment, I knew that the Holy Spirit was not letting me walk away from blessed are the peacemakers for this reason, of which there are a few compounding reasons, but this is the primary reason because it's impossible for me to properly put the Lord's Prayer into the context of the Sermon on the Mount without realizing that at least several times prior to that prayer, Jesus has introduced an earth-shaking concept to his audience, that they are sons of God. They would not have spoken in those terms. 
So that when he says our Father, which we're going to save, and we're going to deal with it, hopefully next week, when we get to the Lord's Prayer, unless I have another dream of saying something in this room, but we'll get to the Lord's Prayer. When we get there, you'll be ready for the impact, I think, of our Father, because you will have had this lesson tonight. So let's dig into why it's important to know this truth, that you are sons, before you get to the Lord's Prayer, because without it, we'll mess that prayer up. I want you to notice three moments inside the Sermon on the Mount, all three of which we have dealt with at least superficially, if not pretty extensively. Starting with that, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That is the first familial phrase in the Beatitudes, meaning it's the first time that Jesus uses a family principle in the midst of the Beatitudes because we've got poor in spirit and we've got mourning and meek and hungry and thirsty and merciful, but they are inheriting a kingdom and they are comforted and they are filled and they obtain and they see God, but they're not family. And then when you get to peacemakers, they get to be the sons of God. And that sounds very much like Genesis where God is creating something after his own self and he's making woman after his own creation, and they're bearing children after themselves. And the family line, which picks up in Genesis and really runs the story of the Bible, and it's big to us Christians because we believe in a virgin birth, and we believe in a connection to King David, and we believe in a connection to Abraham, and all of those family things are way more crucial, I think, even than we admit or that we understand. And then here's Jesus finally saying, blessed are the peacemakers, because someone on the earth gets to call themselves the sons of God, which is a pretty big deal. And it's not blessed are the Israelites, for they shall be called the sons of God. And it's not blessed are those who um, do my father's will, or blessed are those who go to temple, or blessed are those who sacrifice. It's an odd one. Peacemakers. Now watch the context broaden a bit as you work into the Sermon on the Mount. 16. Let your light so shine before men, same chapter, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is the first reference to your Father inside of the Sermon on the Mount. As the sermon starts to broaden, just a touch, he has his disciples, us, his audience, working out of who they are, so that the world around us can see the good works and give glory to, and then that's a possessive pronoun, your Father in heaven, not just the Father, but your Father who is in heaven. And so now it's peacemakers are sons. Go out, do the work of peace. People glorify your Father which is in heaven. And then this one, which we'll do a couple of things with tonight, but we're going to start here and save the bulk of it for later. 44, 45, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is the, one of those we talked about when we went through this is not fun. This is one of the least attractive moments in the Sermon on the Mount. Who likes this? Um, that you may be sons, there it is, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven because He makes His sun rise on the evil, on the good, sends rain on the just, and on the unjust, but what does it take, according to 44, to be the sons of the Father in 45? Well, you love your enemies, and you bless people that curse you, and you do good to people that hate you, and you pray for people who spitefully use you and persecute you. No one in 44 is your friend. Notice that. 
None of them are a part of your family. None of them are part of your friend group. None of them go to your church. They are your enemies. They are your persecutors. They are the people who mistreat you. They are the people who push you aside. And Jesus says, if you can learn to love them and you can learn to treat them well, then you will look like sons of your father. Okay, so we are broadening the scope of sonship. Blessed are the peacemakers. They should be the sons of God. First time he ever says that. When people see your good works, they'll glorify your father in heaven. Oh, what kind of works? When your enemies come against you and people persecute you and they harm you. Then you can call yourself the sons of God. So it's not only familial and not only the first usage of sons, but its placement is powerful. Because this is Jesus' first far-reaching public sermon since coming out of the wilderness. He gets baptized in the Jordan River. We must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Heaven opens. A dove descends and rests on Jesus. And the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's a lot packed into one little phrase. Can't do all of it, but you should never hear it without realizing the importance of the fact that God called Jesus the beloved son in whom he was well pleased and Jesus had done nothing hadn't healed one person had not raised one person from the dead hadn't fed the hungry and yet God is well pleased in Jesus and with Jesus and the second thing you should never forget is that when he comes out of the river of Jordan he goes into the wilderness to replay Israel's story Israel crosses the dry ground of the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, according to the Corinthian letter. And what do they do? They go 40 years into the wilderness. Because once you come out of one place, all you have done is entered another place, and you are empty, and you need filled. And so the Jesus that goes into the wilderness empties himself. No food. No relationship. Armed with one piece of equipment. This is my son. I'm happy with him. When he faces off with the devil in the wilderness, the dragon, the snake, the darkness, the lowest point you can be, he's confronted immediately with, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Why does the enemy start there? Because it was the last thing Jesus heard of himself. It's the only weapon Jesus has left. So the enemy has to try to take the one weapon away that Jesus has. His identity as a son. If you're the son, make the stones turn to bread. Jesus, of course, doesn't play the game. He maintains his identity of sonship. And when he comes out of the wilderness, he steps into the synagogue in Luke 4 in Nazareth. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. You could say this, He goes through the waters of baptism. He goes down into the emptying of his own personal hell. He squares off with the the thing that is opposing him the most. He confronts it with the identity of sonship. And then he receives an infilling of the Holy Spirit that anoints him to do his work. It mirrors what happened to you when you come to Christ. You come out of the land of Egypt and you go into the wilderness where everything is emptied. You come out of sin, but you still don't have anything. And in that place, you receive everything the Lord has for you so that you can walk into your own promised land and you can do everything that is destined for you to do. And that's why salvation is not just a thing, but an ongoing process 
of deliverance and an ongoing process of him moving in us and through us. And Jesus lives that out. What's this have to do with blessed are the peacemakers? Because Jesus heard, I'm a son. He had his sonship questioned. He overcame the enemy by maintaining his sonship. And in his first public sermon, he says to his crowd, blessed are the peacemakers. You too get to be called sons of God. So, sonship must be pretty important. It's like the weapon you get to take against your enemy. It's, and we're going to talk about the weapon you get to use against your enemy in this tonight because there's no way you can talk about peace without talking about weaponry. Um, in most places, that'll get a big amen in the American church if you say there's no way you can talk about peace without talking about weaponry. I mean, we literally have a gun called the peacemaker. I don't think it's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the Son of God. But I do believe that there is something about peace that is in the terms of the kingdom weapon-like. And I want to show you why as we work through this. So the identity of sonship then is an important piece in the blessed are the peacemakers because it's the only one in which sonship is attached But what does this mean for my salvation? Because what scared us about the Sermon on the Mount is that you're going to preach the Sermon on the Mount and that if I fail to do it, I somehow don't go to heaven. That what makes me a Christian is my ability to do these things. And it's so scared grace circles and new covenant preachers and teachers that they've sort of backed off. I've said this to you 10 times, so I'll say it 11. They've sort of backed off the Sermon on the Mount because they're afraid the Sermon on the Mount are instructions of legalism. That if you follow them too closely, you'll move away from God's grace. I don't believe that. Not as long as you have your identity firmly entrenched in actually being a son, then you can let the Sermon on the Mount say what it means to say. Let me give you an example. Remember this from John 1. And we were here a long time ago when we walked through the Gospel of John. John 1, 12 and 13. As many as received him. This is actually John talking. Not John the Baptist. Not Jesus. It's the Apostle John. It's the writer. And this is his biggest single block of text in black versus text in red. Text in black, author talking. Text in red, of course, Jesus talking in most of your translations. Biggest chunk, and it's his commentary on the life of Christ. This is one of his great contributions to Christian theology. As many as received Jesus to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Some translations say he gave the right to become sons of God. To those who believe in his name, these were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So think about these two concepts. John, for as many as believe in his name, he has given them the right, technically Greek word, authority. As many as believe in Jesus, you have the authority to call yourself the sons of God. Then go over here to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are the children of God. They are the sons of God. What's our salvation verse in this? This is so we don't get confused on what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So I want to show you something in the Greek. John uses the Greek word technon, which means child. What was our text? Blessed, uh, for as many as believe in his name, he hath given them the authority to call themselves the technon of God. To call themselves the child. And the Greek technon gives a prominence or a preeminence to the phrase birth. It's a birth process. So let's give you the, a little cleaner translation. To those who believe in Jesus, they are born 
into a new life. As you believe in Jesus, you are born. That's why the next verse was, these are not born of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of blood, but of the Spirit of God. Because technon is used, and technon is a phrase in which you've been birthed into something. As many as believe on Jesus, he gives them the right to, to assume that they've been born into the family of God. Every one of you here have the right to assume that you are born into the family of God. You have the authority to because you've believed on Jesus. But Jesus doesn't use technon in the Sermon on the Mount. He uses the Greek word huios. This is a word that Paul loves to use in the New Testament, in the epistles. The Greek word huios means son. And it has no prominence in birth, but rather it stresses the dignity and the character of relationship. In other words, it doesn't have anything to do with someone born into something. It has to do with someone knowing something about themselves. This is an identity word in the Greek. So peacemaking is not how you are born into Christ. Peacemaking is what you do once you realize you've been born into Christ. So as many as believe on Jesus, that's your salvation moment. That's the beginning, at least, of your salvation moment. Not the end. You're technon. You are just a babe. You are just a child growing into the grace of God. As you start to live out what the Word says about you, you start to realize not the method of being saved, but the responsibility of being saved. And so the method of being saved is believe on Jesus and your salvation begins in a born-again experience. But the results of believing on Jesus are, blessed are the peacemaker, they get to know they're the sons of God. Because not blessed are the peacemaker, now they're the sons of God. That would have been more like blessed are the peacemakers, they are the technon. You understand? Blessed are the peacemakers, they were just born to God. No. They're already born into God. They're peacemakers because they've been born into God. And the fact that they're peacemakers, the fact that they, by the way, those three I used in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, every time he talks about sons and children, he's using huios. He's using sons who have a dignity, who have a responsibility, who have an identity. And therefore, blessed are the peacemakers means not if I keep the peace, I am saved, but rather because I'm saved, I know what it means to make peace. Okay, now that helps us clear a lot of clouds about the Sermon on the Mount because in that little Greek lesson alone, we realize that what we're seeing out of Jesus is a description of what happens because we know who we are. So we go back to... Another moment of huios, the opening moment of it in the, into the Beatitudes from the ninth verse. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And remember that we're inside the kingdom of God. Who are the sons in the kingdom and the sons of the kingdom? They're not sons because they make peace. They make peace because they are sons. And so if all of us are sons and daughters, peacemaking is not an option. Yeah, that was all that to say that. It's not an option. It's not as if you can say, well, there are times when peacemaking works. You know, because let me give you this. If you give yourself a caveat for, for making peace, you will always find a reason to excuse this isn't the moment to make peace. <laughs> That's just who we are. If you can give yourself one back door this is why when people make arguments about, well, what about this? What about that? What about this moment? What about that moment? 
I don't like the, the, the what about this moments. First of all, because Jesus didn't major in those things. Jesus didn't come along and go, okay, I got some things I want to tell you, but listen, admittedly, this, 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 and this, these are toughies. Um, so, you know, deal with that. Just let the Holy Spirit tell you. Um, I don't think it's a cheap answer to say, let the Holy Spirit tell you. That's sometimes the best I've got. It's the best any of us have. But I think as long as we start trying to find excuses and back doors in moments like the Sermon on the Mount, go, well, you know, yeah, we got to make peace, but there's also this moment. And most of the time we create the most fantastic, impossible situation in the world so we can justify the fact that there is probably a moment when we don't make peace. We always get into that when we tell people to turn the other cheek. You go, you know, Jesus tells you to turn the other cheek and you go, yeah, but what about this? What about I've, every time I've ever taught it or, or especially when you just talk about it with someone, they always give you seven or eight bombastic, outlandish examples of when it would be impossible for you to turn the other cheek. And what I think I've just started saying to people is, listen, it's obvious that you've got a few moments where you refuse that you're not going to turn the other cheek. So don't ask me about which ones are permissible. This is something you need to be talking to the Lord about. Because you brought a list in here of five or six things that you want to know, are they excused? So my thoughts are this. Once you start making back doors, you'll find a reason to assume that every moment you're in has one. So go into it as the sons of the kingdom who make peace. Let that be your default position. Not, we don't have to unless the conditions are right. No, assume the conditions are right. Make peace. That's the best we can do with what Jesus gave us. Why? Because you don't stop being a son. You're always a son. You're a son when times are good, and you're a son when times are not so good. And therefore, peacemaking is who you are. It is what you do. But peacekeeping and peacemaking are two different things. Okay? Let's be sure we make a very clear understanding here. Peacekeeping can be passive, while peacemaking is active. By the way, which one is in the Beatitudes? Peacekeeping or peacemaking? Peacemaking, okay. Well, we could keep peace by isolation and silence. Just maintain whatever peace already exists. That's a peacekeeper. A lot of times, peacekeepers can also be cowards. Because they just don't want to get involved. They go, well, I'm just keeping the peace. You're keeping the peace, but you're not making the peace. Keeping the peace. You don't need Jesus to keep peace. So what you, you know what? Not in this context. You understand what I mean? You don't have to come to a revelation of Christ to keep peace if by keeping peace you just mean be quiet. Just don't rock the boat. Don't stir things up. All right? You can keep peace by isolation, by silence. By the way, isolation is never the, never the response of the redeemed unless by isolation you mean I want to go get away to hear from him, but hearing from him will always cause me to go back out of isolation. Jesus never runs away and stays away. Isolation for Jesus is just a reboot to come back to bring something to the mass, to the, to the crowd. And so, you know isolation is going to be a problem. If it takes isolation to keep peace, it's not going to be peace for long. Maintaining whatever peace already exists is peacekeeping. We can only create peace where there is conflict. Isolation and inactivity are not going to be options in that moment. And so, peacemakers are not people who set back in the midst of stuff and stay out of it and that's the way they make peace. That's not making peace. That's trying to keep the peace you've put yourself into. Peacemaking sees conflict and realizes there is a resolution. Blessed are not the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers because the sons of God 
walk the kingdom into the situation. They don't just face situations and run into isolation and go, well, the kingdom keeps its hands off of it. I don't think we understand what it means to be sons. Sons do not watch their kingdom and just be passive. They are active. Now, that's rallying talk. I mean, that's like exciting stuff. because We get to be active, get to have action, peacemakers, go get busy. And that's when we usually start picking up arms and getting excited about legislation and the right politician and voting this and voting that. And, and we, we're very quick to keep the peace by picking up all the instruments of the system of the world. Whatever they are, whether it's weapons or politics or money or power or nations or leaders and to try and pick up the right ones while leaving the wrong ones alone has become the task of the American church. And therefore, you got to align yourself with the right politics, the correct politician, the right legislation. Peacemaking as sons of God does not surrender its position as sons of the kingdom to borrow the tools of the system of the world so that it can keep peace and call it godly while using all of the things you could have done without Jesus. That's, that's, not, that's not the kingdom's peacemakers. It's to use all the weaponry you would have had if you didn't go to church. But because you're going, therefore God's fighting on your side. And we have to have a better definition of peacemaking. And it has to be birthed out of being sons. And it has to be birthed out of knowing that sons are a part of a community of sons and daughters, part of the family of God, able to call Him Father, and part of the citizenry of the kingdom. This will make our Father who art in heaven mean something. Because we will belong to a kingdom of God's children, not just an individual who has co-opted the powers of the systems of the world and called it peacemaking. So that when we say our Father, we can mean it because He's in heaven, not on the earth. It doesn't mean God's presence isn't here, but we're not talking about our earthly fathers. We're talking about the Father who birthed a bunch of sons into the kingdom. And if He did, then He's shown us exactly what peacemaking looks like. Let me show you Jesus speaking of this kind of peacemaking in his ministry. And we're going to take a short little turn with Jesus and pick up some Old Testament as well. Because to me, that's what Bible study is all about. It's grabbing the text they would have known and then dropping it into where we are. Um, They don't know they're in the text, by the way. Okay? When Jesus walks into a town, they don't know they're having Bible written about them. All right. They don't... They aren't living the Bible out. For them, there's no such thing as Bible, uh, which is a collection of books. For them, there's the sacred scriptures, both oral and written. But almost all of them came in through their ear, and they heard them sang or spoken or recited or chanted, sometimes read, and that dropped them into their spirit. In moments of spontaneous worship, excitement, and shock, the Jews would grab scriptures from that well and proclaim them. 
They did not pull out their Bible and go and look it up and then cross-reference and say, okay, this is the one we need. Things came spontaneous in the moment, so it was birthed out of what they knew. And the powerful thing about that is just like I told you, the Holy Spirit can drop something in me in a dream, one line that it takes me days to realize all he was really saying because he won't give you everything. He'll just put you on the right mat sometime, the right wrestling mat. And he'll go, get busy. And he'll go, well, why don't you just give me all the details? Because I don't work that way. You get one line, figure it out. And so that's beautiful because then that means you get to open this Bible and go at it and realize that it's okay. And so sometimes out of the, the belly Bonus of the heart, mouth speaks, boom, they praise, and they don't even know exactly what they're doing or where they're praising from or the context around which they're praising. But if you let the Holy Spirit do the work, then something beautiful can come out of that. Let me give you an example of that from the peacemaker himself and how in a moment of spontaneous worship, they land right where they need to land. And if they had known where they were, this is our advantage. We do have our own portable copy, so we can look it up and figure some things out in real time sometimes. Maybe they would have done better. Very familiar story. This is what we would teach on Palm Sunday from Luke chapter 19. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, final weekend. This is the passion weekend of his life. And in Luke chapter 19, they bring the, the, the little cult to Jesus. I jumped into the middle of a story so we didn't have to read too many verses because I'm going to read too many already. So starting in 35, they bring that little colt to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. This is not the 12. This is the multitude of his disciples. This is the body of people who welcome him into the city. The whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want to stay here for a second because I've taught you to watch for these as you read text, as we put, print them back. And that's watch for the quote marks. Because in verse 38, you have saying, you have colon, you have quote. And then you have the little quote inside the quote, which tells you that this is not just the crowd talking. This is the crowd reciting. They've heard this somewhere. And so what they have heard is, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing a psalm from the Jewish songbook. But they stop at the end of Lord. See that little mark. Everything that comes after that is spontaneous in the moment. They attach the moment to their worship. They, they bring a worship song from their past and they add the moment. What are they seeing? Here comes Jesus riding in on the colt. They're lying clothes and palm fronds in front of him, watching him come in. And the song that jumps out of them is from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Actually, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they're spotting Jesus and assuming that he is king. And to that they attach... Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Because what they see out of a coming king is peace in the heavens, but not peace on the earth. So they don't say peace on earth, goodwill towards men. By the way, who says peace on earth, goodwill towards men in the Bible? The angels. 
Heaven says that towards the earth. The earth doesn't say peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Because the earth tends to say what they see, not what they know to be true by faith. And so the earth doesn't say peace on earth, goodwill towards men, because you can't say peace on earth with all the tragedy and chaos going on. How could we possibly say peace? Yet God, when Jesus arrives, says peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But they don't grab it. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You can have it. Here it is, peace on earth. You can have it if you want it. But when it comes time to sing about it, it's peace in heaven. Then you say, well, what's Jesus going to do about this? This is, this is heart shattering to Jesus right here. Here's how we know. Because we read on. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke her disciples. But he answered and said, I tell you, if these keep silent, the stones would cry out. Why would the rocks cry out? Because heaven has been declaring peace to the earth. If the earth doesn't respond If the humanity on the earth doesn't respond, God's creation will respond. As far as Jesus was concerned, the earth cannot contain the fullness of my Father's peace when it hits this earth. If these people do not respond with glory, the earth will respond with glory. Because it's impossible for them to hold back. But watch the heartbreak. 41. As he drew near, he saw the city and he weeps over it. And he said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And so a weeping Jesus enters Jerusalem on his final weekend and says, if you had only known today, in even this day, he says, the peace that you could have, but you can't see it and you don't see it. Now, why is Jesus weeping? Because he heard them singing a song. And he knows the song. And maybe they've forgotten that because sometimes you know a line, but you don't know the first verse. You know the bridge, but you don't know the final verse. You know the final verse, but you don't remember the chorus. Well, that doesn't happen. (laughs) Don't bore us, get to the chorus. Nobody remembers verses and not choruses, right? So you remember the chorus. You don't remember all the details. And they're a little bit guilty of this because they got a little bit of Psalms 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But they may not know all the context. Let me show you that context, all right? Here's Psalms 118, 22. Watch this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Our covenant God has taken that which has been rejected and is making it the chief cornerstone. If they had paid attention to the fact that right in the middle of that conversation, the Pharisees turned on Jesus and said, keep your disciples quiet. They might have realized that the song the crowd was singing is the very cornerstone that is being rejected right in front of them. The very song they're singing is being played out right in front of them. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So the Psalm 118 prayer is, right now is the day God has made. We hope that in this day He saves us. Jesus knows this song. Next verse. And this is what they sing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't sing the first three verses. They didn't sing, you're the stone the builders rejected. Save us today. And that's why he says, if you had known today is the day of your salvation, you would have done the things that make, not keep, you would have done the things that make for peace. Because I'm here and you can have me, but you don't want it. 
And he goes, the things that make for peace are yours. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And that's exactly what they do. And so Christ goes to the altar, the cross, and becomes the sacrifice, the stone that the builders rejected, the one who could have blessed them in that day. And so what does he say to them when they sing one line of the song? He goes, you're making me cry, guys. He goes, you could have had it all. The day you're singing about, I am the day. This is why, I know this sounds like a sidebar, but this is why we don't confine Christian worship to Sabbath. You go, why aren't you Sabbath observers? We are. We have just realized that this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Not the seventh day of the week. Which day? This is the day. What about tomorrow? This is the day. What about the next day? This is the day too. Wherever you are, that's the day that the Lord has made. That's the day you can have the peace that you can make. And how do you make it? Jesus, his words, his actions, his passion. That's that final weekend, cross resurrection, are the things that make for peace. Because he said, in this day, the stone the builder rejected, he is the thing that makes for peace. How do we apply that to our lives though, right? It's just theology. What's it look like for us? Oh, well, you want to know stuff like that? Leave that to Paul. Good old Apostle Paul. Because when he comes along, takes this resurrected Christ, ascended Christ, descended Holy Ghost, he puts it into the theology of the early church. It looks like this. Romans 4, this is just one verse. We're going to jump back to another one. Romans 14, 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So Paul understood the Beatitudes. He, never, he doesn't quote them as the Beatitudes, but he understood, blessed are the peacemakers, they are the sons of God. What would happen if you knew you were the sons of God? You would pursue whatever makes for peace and you would mutually upbuild your brother. That's part of what makes for peace, obviously, is mutual upbuilding. This is part of it. Now, let me take you back into the Sermon on the Mount. Watch how Paul takes this peacemaking Jesus, this Holy Spirit descended into the church, this Sermon on the Mount, and he molds them together. Watch a comparison text. Start with Jesus. Matthew 5, 44. Now, now, we've been here. This is where we were earlier in the hour, and I told you we'd do a little more with it. So watch what Jesus does. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good those that hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We've been in this. I know. We're not going to re-preach it. We've done this a whole week on this. There, there's the beginning of a tough passage for us. Because that isn't easy. None of that's easy. No one puts that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> Be a long bumper sticker too, but it's just, can you imagine that on a bracelet? 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There's where we started tonight. This is one of the sonship passages. Look where it goes next. He makes his sun rise on the evil and in the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, it's easy to love people who love you. He goes, that's not a tough one. Don't start bragging about the people you love if everyone you love already loves you. He goes, that's not what I'm talking about. 47. If you greet your brethren only, what do you, what do, you do more than others? Don't even tax collectors do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect. You shall be complete. You shall be complete in the way your father is complete in that your father doesn't only love people that love him back. You shall be completed the way your father is complete in that he doesn't wait until you're good to him to be good to you. Aren't you glad for that? 
All right, what's Paul do with this? Because Paul, by the way, doesn't have Matthew 5 in print in his ministry. It's, it's almost a scholarly, there's almost 100% scholarly agreement that Paul never read the Gospels. He would have heard them, but he could not have read them. They had not been written down until his death. And yet, he follows the same Holy Spirit. And he sounds like this in Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You want your back door? That maybe there's some moments when you don't have, have to make peace. Watch how Paul slams that back door. If it's possible, as much of it depends on you, live peaceably. Only back door you get is whatever doesn't depend on you. And you can't do anything about that anyway. But whatever depends on you. So you have to surrender your own emotional self-control to create a back door where you are not required to be a peacemaker. In other words, you have to let somebody else be the boss of you. That's real simple language. Somebody else gets to be the boss of how you react, how you respond, how you live your life. If that's the way you want to live, then you've got the back door. You don't have to be a peacemaker. Somebody else is the boss of you. But as long as you're in charge of you, as long as you can help it, make peace. Sounds to me like if you want any kind of autonomy, you best be a peacemaker. Part of your call, part of your responsibility. If it's possible, live peaceably. 1920. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Oh, Sermon on the Mount, all over again. Don't avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. Give space to wrath. Who gets the space for wrath? When do you get to get angry? Show your fury. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, okay, there was the space for wrath, by the way. When do we get to get mad? When do we get to show anger? He goes, the space for wrath is let the Lord take care of that. The space for your anger is his. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is mine. I had a young man years ago in my youth group. I was going around, going, what do you guys want to do? What's the Lord leading you to do when you get older? And he goes, I want to be a bounty hunter. <laughs> and I said, that's interesting. I said, what, uh, why do you want to be a bounty hunter? He said, vengeance is mine. <laughs> I said, I don't think you're reading the whole, the whole verse. So we need to have a contextual class on that. Vengeance is mine, I will replay. Don't stop at the comma, says the Lord. The Lord gets to be the one with vengeance. Okay, therefore. Therefore is always important because whatever come before it matters. If it's a therefore, see what it's there for? Okay, so what comes in front of it is don't get to avenge yourself, give place to wrath, and the wrath you give place to is the, the Lord gets to do it. In that case, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. You want to know what weapon you get in peacemaking? This is it. Coals of fire is your weapon. Scriptural permission to use your weapon. Coals of fire. I'm, I'm serious. This is it. This is how Paul felt. Paul went, you want a weapon? Vengeance is God's. Therefore, what's your weapon? Your weapon is your coals of fire which is accomplished when you actively make peace. 
The charity Paul speaks of is not aimed at those with whom you are at peace, but rather with your enemies. He doesn't say if your friend is in need, give him something to drink. If your mom is hungry, give her something to eat. He says if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. In so doing, you get to swing the only weapon you have. Sounds to me like Jesus was determined to change the world by making peace. And I don't think he's changed his mind. And if nothing else, he's determined to change your world by you becoming a peacemaker. And determining what that looks like and what that means. All right, one more. First Peter. This is one of my favorite passages in both Testaments. First Peter 3, 10 and 11. 10 is, is my jam. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursuit. I want to deal with 11 in a second. I want to get on 10 because that's my verse. I didn't think for a long time in Christianity that loving life was an option. And I'm not being funny. I'm being dead serious. I was introduced to a version of Christianity that told you that if you are a responsible Christian and you're really full of the Spirit, you will hate this world and its entertainments and it's it, what makes it laugh will, will pulse you what turns it on will turn you off you got to hate this place and do everything you can in your power to clutch as many of them out of the fire they're destined to go to as you can and if you fall in love with this world it'll still it'll stunt your anointing it'll stunt your spiritual development it'll stunt your growth and we could quote five other verses around why you were not supposed to ever have much fun and when I started to come into a revelation of grace, one of the first verses that I swore was not in my Bible until I came into the revelation of grace was 1 Peter 3.10 because I had never had anyone quote it to me because it's kind of a dangerous verse. And it's also a quotation from the Old Testament, which means Peter wasn't just making it up. He was finally realizing why it was in the Bible. For he who would love life and see good days. Permission to love life granted. Okay? Permission to love life granted. You want to love life and you want to see good days. Good days doesn't mean everything good happens to you. It means your day, your day is in Him. You have a good Father. So I started tonight by saying don't think God is good when stuff is good. God is good when stuff is bad. God doesn't cease to be good. You want to love life and see good days? Here's a good place to start. Check your tongue and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. And you're not going to be able to get away from this, guys. You're not going to be able to get away from that last line because you're supposed to be peacemakers and peacemakers are the sons of God. And what do peacemakers do? Let him seek peace and let him pursue it. It is actively a part of who we are if you want to love life and see good days. We can't get around the responsibility of sons and daughters in Christ. We are peacemakers. We're not just peacekeepers. We are peacemakers. It's, what we, it's when we love life and see good days. Part of it is keeping our mouth shut about probably everything. It's, it's being silent when we need to be silent. It's learning to speak when we need to speak. That's governing your tongue. 
And that's a New Testament principle. Governing your tongue is not total silence. It's knowing when not to talk and when to speak. And it's as bad to not speak when you should. But the big thing is look for peace. Don't look for trouble. Because, <laughs> man, we do that, don't we? That's half the reason people search social media and watch the news. They're just looking for trouble. You know, find something to spread. Find something to link. Find something to talk about. Need some water cooler stuff. Don't look for trouble. Look for peace. You will not find what you are not looking for. So Peter said, seek peace and then pursue it. You want to find peace? You better start looking. Don't expect it to sneak up on you and bite you. Peace is something you're going to go looking for, and you're going to find it in the one who said, if you knew the things that made for peace, he said, you would have accepted me because the things that made for peace are Christ. So listen to him talk. Watch what he does. Watch how he moves. Follow his lead. It's asking a lot, isn't it? Yes. So much so that Jesus closes that fifth chapter and says, if you do this, you'll be perfect like your Father in heaven. You'll be complete the way the Father is complete. You're complete in your righteousness. You're complete in your sanctification. You don't have to worry about it. You're not half saved. You're not a technon only. You're a huios. You're a fully grown son. You didn't just get born. You're huios. You are who he says you are. What's that mean? Let's do it. Let's start to live like it. Blessed are the peacemakers. I know now why we need that before our Father who art in heaven. So that you know what it means to be a son. And they knew what it meant to be a son when he got to that prayer. I'm not saying they embraced it. We're going to look into this next week. That collective pronoun is huge. It's not my father. It's our father. And the fact that it's father is big. I don't know if we can do it all in a week. We'll see. And... Uh, I also need to stop telling you exactly what we're going to do the next week because this isn't a sequential verse-by-verse verse thing anymore. So I don't, frankly, I don't know. It's probably going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's most likely going to be on the Lord's Prayer. So we'll see when we get there. Let's pray, and let's apply, all right? How do we do that? Sometimes it's as simple as, Father, I heard something tonight that I'm wrestling with. Help me wrestle, all right? It's good. He's good at that. That's a good place to start. Father, thank you for the Word. Thank you for the strength and the wisdom to navigate some passages tonight. Thank you for that little sentence in a dream. And it, it was just your way of nudging me. Thank you for that because I'm going to have a brand new perspective on the importance of the Lord's Prayer. I don't think I'll understand it, but I got a new set of eyes. Help all of us for all of the places that we don't quite understand it. Give us that permission we need to wrestle and help us to yield in the places where it's just as simple as letting you do the work and grow us into the sons and the daughters that we know that we are. And one other thing, Lord, from tonight that was a special moment for me. Some of us have crossed the Jordan and some have entered into their own personal wilderness. 40 days, 40 years of depletion to face the darkest thing in their lives. The only weapon they have left that matters is, I am a son, I am a daughter. Hold their hand as they wield the only thing they have left and heap coals of fire. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.